morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 6 and 7. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or on page 782 in the worship Bible. Please follow as long as I read, beginning with Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from, who, from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disrupted with Stephen, or disputed, pardon me, with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and, the, and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And now skipping to chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Stephen, as they were stoning him, called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the Word of God. Thank you, Greg. That's a powerful section in the book of Acts. We didn't have the time to read the whole thing together. It takes about 13 minutes to read the whole thing. And I thought, well, we just, I want some time to say a few things myself too. So, uh, so I'll tell you what his sermon was. Greg basically gave to you the preamble to the sermon and what happened as a result of the sermon. We see that he'd gotten into trouble with people. And then after he preached this sermon, they actually killed him after what he said. And he was the first person to give his life for the sake of Jesus Christ. The first Christian Martyr. The word martyr is from the word witness. He gave witness to Jesus Christ, and as a result, he was killed. This morning, if you're with us for the first time, you would know that we're, you would not know this, but we are in a study of the book of Acts. And as we continue our study through the book of Acts, we're going to take a look at this man known as Stephen. And yes, he is my very own namesake, after whom I was named, I suppose, by my children. Well, I'm not sure, but what I was actually named after a 
minor character known as Steve Allen, who was a popular entertainment, because I know my parents thought about giving me the middle name Stephen Allen, which they didn't because they didn't want it to sound so much like Steve Allen. But I prefer to be named after Stephen uh, in the New Testament, although my name is spelled with a V and his was spelled with a PH. But anyway, although he's a relatively minor character in the book of Acts, all we really know about him is found in this section of Scripture, which we're going to take a look at. A great deal of attention in the book of Acts is paid to this person and his uh, significance in the overall development of the church. Keep in mind that the book of Acts is written to explain how it is that this small sect of people in, a, in the backwoods of Galilee, in the city of Jerusalem ultimately, how this small sect of followers of Jesus grew to actually move all the way to Rome and begin to really to change the world 30 or 40 years. 30 years or so after, um, uh, after, the, after Jesus was executed, this was uh, written, this book was written to describe how it had moved in just a few decades to be a, a movement which was literally changing the world. And a very important character in that story is this person known as Stephen. We first met him last week when he was among the seven men who were chosen to care for the needs of the, wil- the widows among them, the poor among them, as the church began to structure for its continued to grow so that the apostles could devote their attention to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Certain people were appointed to take care of the needs of the poor, and Stephen was among them. And now we see that he didn't just take care of the needs of the poor, but that he became a powerful preacher. Yes, this is a book filled with speeches by Peter and Paul, main characters of the church. But the longest speech in the book of Acts is this one here in the seventh chapter of Acts. It is Stephen's speech, which is printed in great detail. The longest speech in the whole book. So uh, I feel glad to know the longest-winded preacher in the Bible is a guy named after me, Stephen, from the New Testament. Clearly, Luke, who wrote this book, felt his place was important in the development of the early church. And so I've struggled with this this week because we're going to cover about 70 verses of space today. I just didn't want to break it up into a lot of things because it's a sermon that's printed for us, uh, and we'll see that it's a very significant sermon in the life of the church. For you see, the martyrdom of Stephen signaled a significant change in the story of the church. Before Stephen's death... um, the church had simply been a minor irritation which Judaism was now trying to deal with within itself around the temple courts, a few thousand people. But after Stephen's death and as subsequent to Stephen's preaching, the, this sect became a major problem, one which was worthy of outright persecution. From here on, you see that persecution happened in the church in the sub- verses just subsequent to what Greg uh, read for you. You see, what had been a minor irritation within Judaism now had become a major problem, one worthy of outright persecution. And secondly, and what had been a purely localized movement within Jerusalem and Judea now became a widely dispersed movement throughout the ancient world. It was the sermon of Stephen and the killing of Stephen, which led to the persecution of the disciples, which led them to leave Jerusalem and go out telling the story of Jesus all around the world. So Stephen's place in the story is very, very important. And in fact, many people think 
that Stephen's speech had a huge impact on a young man who was also very opposed to the church. His name was Saul, who later became Paul when he was converted later. He was part of that persecuting majority of within Judaism at the point of Stephen's death. And then later on, while he was persecuting the church, he had an encounter with God, which ultimately changed his life, and he began to be the greatest evangelist ever in the history of the world, I would say. You see, it was Stephen's death, Stephen's life and death and preaching which sparked this ministry. Stephen's ministry, his message, and his martyrdom sparked the fulfillment of Jesus' great commission to us, the followers, on the outside of Jerusalem at the beginning of this book. You may remember it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They hadn't begun to fulfill that yet. But when Stephen was killed, they were spread out, and they began to take the gospel immediately in the very next section into Samaria, and then in the very next sections on towards the ends of the earth. So let's take a look at this extraordinary tale. I will need to be brief and selective But let's take a look at it under three various headings. And you can jot these down in your worship notes if you like. Number one, the context of Stephen's sermon. Number two, the content of Stephen's sermon. And number three, the consequences of Stephen's sermon. Let's take a look, first of all, at the context uh, of Stephen's Stephen's sermon. Uh, This picture here is a picture from 1616. Uh, called the Martyrdom of Saint Stephen by Paul Rubin, Peter Pieter Paul Rubens. That's the nice picture. He's looking up and he sees the the Son of Man in heaven as he's being killed. That's the picture that I chose to be the context for this PowerPoint presentation. Okay. Well, we see that what Stephen began to do. He first began to uh, take care of the widows, but it says in the eighth verse, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders uh, and signs among the people. Then arose some among them from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Okay? So we see that Stephen began to have a powerful ministry. That's the first thing, Brian. A powerful ministry. Stephen was waiting on tables, but he began to speak in the synagogue. This is the first evidence. Oh, this, I have to be quick. But first evidence of, the, of them going beyond the temple. This was probably Stephen's home synagogue. Stephen was a person of Greek background, and we see that this is the synagogue of the freedmen, and all these are people from far, uh, places from far away, Alexandria, Cyrenia, uh, Cy- the Cyrenians, Cilicia, and Asia. And these were Jewish people who worshipped in Greek-speaking synagogues, and Stephen just had to take the message to them. He began to talk to them about, uh, about Jesus, and their me- his message was powerful, it says. He was full of great grace and power and was doing great wonders among the people. And it says there in the 10th verse, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen had a powerful ministry, but he also secondly had a controversial message. And you can put that down there, Brian, as well. A controversial message. What was his message? His message was that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the whole 
story of Israel, that God had been working through Israel and that now God was work, had been working through one man, his own son, Jesus, we know now to be God in the flesh, who was uh, the final faithful Israel who gave his life for the sins of Israel and, yes, of the whole world. This was a very controversial message. And so look what they said. They said, they secretly, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he is speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And so we see thirdly that Stephen is called, and you can put this down, Brian, as well, to make a public defense. He had been called before the Sanhedrin. And what we see right away, and as we read through this story, we'll see that Luke is painting a very close parallel between the trial of Jesus and the trial of Stephen. If you read this whole story carefully, beginning to end, you will see some uh, quite obvious parallels between how Stephen was brought before the council and how Jesus was brought before the council. In fact, consider some of the similarities. There were witnesses that were trumped up against him. And what were those witnesses saying? He's saying, we're going to tear down this temple. Was that said about Jesus? Yes. And in fact, that's much of why they brought him before themselves. And they, um, uh, and then, uh, uh, so the issue about the, 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 and the various witnesses was brought up and the temple question was brought up and, and of course they condemned Stephen to death at the very end and you will see at the very end in the section that's the, that, um, that Greg read for you what happens uh, they, he looks up into heaven and he sees uh, uh, the, father, uh, the father and the son next to him and what does he say basically father into your hands I commit my spirit similar and he says also father forgive them Clearly, one of the subtleties of Luke, the author of this, is he's showing that as Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world, so Stephen and even future generations of Stephen's followers of Jesus will give their lives as a witness to Jesus Christ. There's a very strong similarity. What were the issues? They were wondering, are you speaking against the temple? Are you speaking against the law? And are you speaking against Moses and God? He was, and this is, oh. Stephen was telling a very biblical story that was rooted in Scripture, and you will see it as he gives his sermon, which is a summary of what he probably had been teaching. But he was telling the story in a way that proved the, the, the truth of the message, the gospel of Jesus. And they were not ready to accept that the way they had been telling this story was not entirely right. This happens quite often uh, in the church, but I'll get off, I'll get off if I get off on that. So that was the context of Peter's sermon. And so they said, and it says, uh, for we have, verse 14, and they set up false witnesses, remember, like Jesus, who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What a beautiful picture that is. And the high priest said, are these things so? And so then Stephen gives his defense. And we have then next, on the next slide, the content of Stephen's sermon.
the content of Stephen's sermon. And I think there is no way to really go through the whole thing. You can read through it, but you will find in this sermon three different themes that kind of make their way up to the top in this sermon. And we'll take a look at them briefly as a way of understanding this sermon. What Stephen does is he rehearses the Old Testament story. And I know that when I would read through this, a lot of times I thought they just stoned him because they got so tired of listening to him talk, right? He's telling all these stories and saying, oh, I knew all that. I knew all that. Would you just shut up? And they threw stones at Well, that's not what's going on. Peter is telling their story to show how Jesus ultimately fits into that story. And that really is an important thing for us to understand. That's why when we have a Bible that we study, we don't just study a New Testament. The New Testament is a continuation of a story which began clear back to creation, clear back to Abraham, clear back to Moses, clear back to David, clear back to the prophets, and ultimately took person took shape in the person of Jesus where the resurrection then turned the corner on history, and now we are living in the light of the resurrection until the final return of Christ and the final state in the new heavens and the new earth. So he rehearses their story. But as you look at their story, as as you look at it carefully, so I'll take my word for this because I can't go into all the details, but I think you'll see it as we go through, that there are three different themes that kind of make their way and bubbling up to the top. The first theme has to do with the temple of God. You can put that up there, Brian. The temple of God. You see, what he wants them to know is that while the temple that is there in Jerusalem is important, The temple of God is merely there in order to communicate the presence of God, and God never has been and never will be limited to one location at one spot inside a certain building. That's what he wants them to see. And he's wanting to show to them that out of the whole history of time, God has worked in many ways, and yes, the temple was a part of that, but we should not worship the temple as if it's God himself. God is not a local tribal deity. He's the creator of the world, and he's working out throughout of all of history. And so as as Stephen tells this story, he shows how God's presence is not limited to a physical place, not a localized deity, which, by the way, off this topic, is important. That's one reason why we don't just call ourselves the church. We call ourselves the ecclesia, because that's the Bible word for church. Church has to do the building, and you know how it is. We often worship a building. No, we're not supposed to do that. Never were supposed to do that. They were guilty of it in the first century. It's very important, but that wasn't equal to the presence of God. And in the same way, we often can worship buildings as, as well. The presence of God, uh, the temple is where God is, and the Bible teaches that ultimately we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Okay? So let's take a look at this story just real briefly. He wants them to see that God is everywhere. First of all, he talks about Abraham in the, in the, in, in the first couple of verses. Okay? Abraham. He said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. What's he saying? God showed up all the way over there in Mesopotamia. God called Abraham when he was far away. God was never localized to a temple, excuse me, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred 
and go to the land I will show you. Then he went down from the land of Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Okay, going on, he talks about the fact that God is going to give to them this land. See, they had a holy place that was the temple. They had a holy book that was the Torah. But they also had a holy land, their own land right there. And God is, Stephen is saying, God had called Abraham far away. He brought them to the land, but he took them away from this land. Um, and the issue was God's call, all right? Abraham, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. And then here we see that God appeared next to Joseph in Egypt, okay? And the patriarchs, verse, uh, verse 9, and the patriarchs going on, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him all from east to west. God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him a favor and made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So Joseph was part, God appeared to Joseph while he was in Egypt. And then he moves on to talk about Moses, which we see, um, uh, which we see beginning with the 20th verse. And about that time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, father, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words of deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, etc. Okay, going on. Uh, we see that uh, Moses then leaves from Egypt and becomes an exile from Egypt. And then now moving down into verse 29, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. So we see that God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. God appeared to Joseph in Egypt. God appeared to Moses in Midian, all these faraway places. God is everywhere and can be anywhere that he longs. We should never worship the place where he is. We should worship the God who is in that place. That's what's so important. And going on, he talks about the tabernacle which was built in the verses which are subsequent to that. And then uh, later on, as they built the temple, uh, the, finally the temple, he gets to that at the end in verses 44 and following. He starts speaking first about the tent of the tabernacle. That would be the tent of wit witness. And then he says, um, uh, it was Solomon, verse 47, who built a house for him. But then he quotes from Isaiah 66 itself, verse 49. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, Stephen wants them to know that God is bigger than any place we might try to put him. And it's wrong to worship a place more than God himself. And so Jesus ultimately becomes the living temple of God because God was present among him. And so, yes, there is no more any need for that physical temple that they had, but they had mistaken the place where God was for God himself. And sometimes we do the same. 
So that was the first theme. It was the temple. As of the temple, God does not live in a building made by human hands. In fact, God is the one who made all things. And it's beautifully depicted in this story, which I just overlooked, uh, uh, passed over for you. The second main theme of of this sermon is the law of God. See, they were, they, were, they were accusing him of speaking against the temple of God and against the law of Moses. And as he begins to talk about the law, he begins to show them that although they've always talked like they reverence the law of God, they never kept it well anyway. Even as the law was be given, being given, he tells them about Moses, that Moses was up there... Uh, on the mountain, getting the law of God. You, I wish you, if you have your Bibles, you can see this, and I realize a lot of you are unable to bring Bibles to worship, although, of course, I recommend that you do whenever you, whenever you can. We see that um, when Moses was up in, the, uh, up in the mountain, the people said to Aaron, verse 40, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were worshiping, rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heavens, of heaven, as it is written in the prophets. And he speaks from the prophet of, uh, of Amos right there, um, speaking about the worship of the people. You see, he says the law of God is one thing, but we have never been able to fully complete the law of God. We've never been able to actually uh, fulfill the law of God. So the law has a place in God. But we shouldn't worship the law of God. We should be worshiping the God who makes the law. That's why he said in the 53rd verse, he says, uh, excuse me, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before him the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says, we have the law of God, yes, but we need, we've been condemned under the law of God. What he's going to say is that Jesus received in himself our condemnation under the law so we can be set free from its condemnation and learn to walk in newness of life. So he speaks about the temple, he speaks about the law, and thirdly, he speaks about the deliverance of God, the deliverance of God. And this is really important in Stephen's sermon as well. Stephen wants them to know that at every point when God brought up a deliverer, that deliverer got rejected by his people. And even though he had been rejected by his people, that deliverer still delivered them. This first example is Joseph himself. You see him in the ninth verse talked about there. In the ninth verse, he says, And to the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him and made him ruler over Egypt. And then we see that Joseph became the ruler. You see, these people were followers of the the sons of Jacob. Unless they were in Joseph's direct line, which none of them were, they had been part in their ancestors of the people 
uh, Reuben and Issachar and Simeon and all these people who had been jealous of Joseph and rejected Joseph. And if you know your Bible story, they sold him into Egypt. They rejected him. He was the deliverer that God had appointed, but he had been rejected by his people. That's his first thing. The deliverance of God. They're always rejecting God's deliverer, but God delivered them anyway. And we see that happening in, the, in Moses as well. Moses was a deliverer taken by God. Remember, he was raised there in Egypt, and it says in the 20, 25th verse, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. You see, they had rejected Joseph when he was trying while still living in Egypt to be, bring deliverance and help to them. They told on, they tattled on, they believed that he was opposed to them, not on their side. And we see even more clearly stated in the 35th verse as we go on in this story. It says, uh, that, see, Moses has gone off to Midian, and he thinks his life's over. He's going to be a shepherd far away. This is far away. And while he's there, a vision occurs to him, a bush is burning, and God says, I'm going to deliver my people, and I want you to go do it for me. And Moses is understandably reluctant to do that. And, uh, and so, but ultimately, God wins, as he always does, and Moses becomes a reluctant deliverer. But notice what it says in uh, verse 34. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer. See, Moses was a chosen deliverer by God, and what did they do to Moses? But they had rejected Moses himself, and ultimately... Peter comes to the real crux of his sermon. He says, this is the way we've always been, people, because God has now sent another deliverer. It was Jesus who he calls the righteous one, the righteous one of God, and you murdered him too. Look at verse 53, 1 to 53. You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He's saying, your, our ancestors killed the, right, killed the prophets who predicted the righteous one, and now you, standing in front of me, and he must know he's signing his own death certificate, you have killed the one whom God has sent. So the content of Stephen's sermon is that he wants to talk to them about the temple, not to worship the place where God is, but God himself. And God was present in Jesus Christ, and so we should worship him, not the temple. And that God, uh, and he speaks secondly about the law, and the law had been God's words, but it had only brought condemnation to people because they could not lift up to it. But as we see in this gospel story, Jesus took upon himself our condemnation so that we could, under the law, so that we could be set free from the condemnation of the law. They needed a rescuer through the law. And as God had always been promising and providing deliverance to them, they had rejected Moses but God had delivered them anyway. They had to reject, excuse me, they had, and also they had rejected Joseph, but God had delivered them anyway. And they had rejected Jesus, and Jesus himself was not delivered. He died under their condemnation, but then was raised up by God, and he began, he became their deliverer. So that's a brief look at the content of Stephen's sermon. Let's look finally at 
the consequences of Stephen's sermon. The consequences of Stephen's sermon. First of all, there was an earthly verdict of condemnation. When they heard them proclaiming, Stephen proclaiming to them that they were no better than their fathers, that they had killed their righteousness, one from God, it says, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. They condemned him to death, it, it, it indicates. And it says, but they, verse 7, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him, laying their garments by a young man named Saul. Yes, the earthly verdict was one of condemnation. You see, they were, uh, they, 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 they were convinced that Stephen had committed blasphemy against God and, about, and against the law and against the temple, and they were horrified that, God, that, that Stephen would lay at their feet the same kind of sin that their fathers had committed, and he was condemned before them. But there's not just an earthly verdict of condemnation. There is also a heavenly vision of commendation. A heavenly vision of commendation. Look what happens here. As they were gnashing their teeth and enraged at him, verse 55, it says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, the crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God opens his eyes to the reality around him. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, my goodness. He's having this beatific vision of what's going on. And it seems poignant to me that while Stephen had be giving, been giving a, 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 a condemnation, a sentence of condemnation by the earthly court, up there in the heavenly court, he is being given commendation as the Son of Man, Jesus himself, stands there before him. Not everybody else sees it, but Stephen sees it, and so there he is giving his life. But what does he care? He sees the real court. He sees the truth. He sees beyond the pale. He sees the truth, which is always there, but often hidden to our eyes. It was opened up to him, and he saw Jesus standing, standing on his behalf there next to the Father. Oh, what a beautiful picture that is. Yes. And so that's why Stephen could die so gloriously, and he could say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Oh, I don't, I hear Jesus say that, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But when I hear Stephen say it, I think God had worked a miracle in his life. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is one of the things that has been powerful about the history of the church is that whereas most cultures and even in the Jewish cultures during the Maccabean revolts and all, these people would die and they would die breathing curses on those who were killing them. Lord, get them. But when people of Jesus died, they said, Lord, forgive them. They died in a way different from others who died. Yes, there was a heavenly vision of common 
foundation. And so Stephen's career, which was very brief, had a powerful impact. So we see, thirdly and finally, an ultimate victory of Jesus' commission. You see, when, and I didn't have Greg read it for you, I probably should have, when Stephen died, we see that there arose on that day great persecution against the church, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. There is the ultimate victory of Stephen's uh, 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 of Jesus' commission because it was through Stephen's death that the gospel was broken forward out of Jerusalem and moved into Samaria and into Antioch and into Ephesus and into ultimately Rome towards the ends of the earth. Stephen accomplished more through his death than many people ever have accomplished through their lives. Well, we're out of time, but I think this is a powerful, powerful story for us. And so maybe we can just reflect on a few quick questions as we close. We might ask ourselves, what good things have become idols for me, like the temple had become for the people? When have I been worshiping the symbols and not the reality? I'd ask myself, has I, have I ever received the forgiveness which Jesus offers to me? He took the penalty of my condemnation under the law so that I could receive from Him His life, so that therefore there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 1 and 2. What are some of the, the false commitments to the law that I need to let go of, and have I welcomed this deliverer? Well, let's have prayer as we close. Dear Jesus, we thank you for Stephen and for his brief, though powerful, career. We thank you for his witness that he gave even in death. And Father, we are not called, most of us, to give our lives, and yet we shrink back often at the costs of following you. Help us to give everything to the one who gave everything for us. Help us not to be stiff-necked, clinging to our own false stories, but instead let us be bowed before you, receiving from you forgiveness which you freely offer to us through your blood-stained hands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.